This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The case against Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial, who shot and killed motorist Eddie Irizarry, was thrown out this week, and the news came as a shock to many. KYW reporters were in the courtroom and on the ground for reaction. We sit down with them to get a deeper perspective on exactly what went into the judge's decision. I'm just trying to kind of re-illustrate it for people who maybe don't want to watch it but also want to know what happened. Grade school children are creating a pollinator garden. Sharaday Howard tells us more about it. I made a bird, which is like already in the museum, which I finished. And I also made a lizard that I did finish. All that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Well, we wanted to talk about the rather surprising move by Judge Wendy Pugh earlier this week to toss all the charges against Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial, who shot and killed motorist Eddie Irizarry in August after a traffic stop that was, well, far from routine. We're going to get all the details of that and what transpired in the courtroom and the fallout that the city is still dealing with. We are having our first Bridging Philly Reporters Roundtable. With us is KYW's Tim Jimenez, KYW crime and justice reporter Kristen Johansson, and KYW news editor Gina Pompilio. Thanks, guys, for being here. Of course. Thanks for All having right. us. Listen, it's been a pretty heavy week, and uh, we thought that this story was big enough to gather you all in because we had pretty much, you know, team coverage of this whole situation so I wanted to uh, kind of get into this. And KJ, we'll start with you. Kristen Johansson, we like to call her KJ. Right from the beginning, when Irizarry was pulled over, talk about that. I know that he was driving erratically. He had supposedly a knife in the passenger seat. What led up to him being pulled over? So he was driving erratically through the neighborhood, through red lights um, at a high rate of speed. But Kind of what happened and what brought us to the moment of August 14th is that he made a turn onto a one-way street. He went the opposite direction on one-way street. There was a car in the middle, or at least this is what police testified to, in the middle of that street. And it's kind of one of those narrow Philadelphia streets. And so he pulled over to the side on the left and parked because he couldn't go further. Um, In the video, which we've all watched and is out there, you can hear his windows roll up. Because there's music blaring from the car and then, you know, the way that the music kind of drowns out, he's rolling up the windows. And that's kind of the moment exactly when Dial and his partner are coming down the street. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no lights and sirens. You can't see lights and sirens on the surveillance video or hear sirens, I should say. But what happens next is the interaction that lasts about seven seconds. And, uh, and that, there's a lot in that seven seconds. Yeah. There is a lot. Um, so backing up a little bit, body-worn camera video is always kind of rolling. But the way that surveillance video also works is that it's rolling, but there's not really audio until you turn it on. It'll pull audio from a minute prior. There's a delay, if you will. So on the partner's body camera video, there's no audio. But on Dial's video, there is audio. Audio is only on Dial's. And there's also this surveillance camera that kind of captures the whole scene. And you see Dial come out of the passenger side of the car, come around, and he literally has his gun out when he gets to the middle of the hood of the car coming around to Eddie Rosari. And he, as he comes around to the driver's side saying, put your hands up, put your hands up, and it's all happening very, very quickly, the other partner's coming out of the driver's side car. And during this preliminary hearing, which I have to admit I did not hear on the surveillance video, you hear the partner say, that's a blanking gun. So you hear that. Then I want to say what the defense says during the prelim, that, that there's two knives actually in the car. So there's a rounded kind of pocket knife with a black handle. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a kitchen knife that's also in the car. So they're saying that he was holding this pocket knife and that the black part looked like kind of the barrel of a gun or a pistol. And they believe that that's what Mark heard this, saw that, and just basically reacted and fired six or seven shots. Five shots go through his body, Eddie Rosari's body. And on the body cam video, if you kind of piece it all together, you can see how it all happens. And Eddie's bleeding, and then eventually they're trying to get into the car to get him, to get him to the hospital. Um, And Dial takes him to the hospital and has the body camera rolling the whole time. Um, and the partner is at the scene later, supervisors are showing up and he says, you know, along the lines of like, the guy had a knife and he was looking around, the guy had a knife or whatever. And he, he was acting really radically. He never, you know, says exactly what happens on this body worn camera video, but he gives very little detail. Now I want to talk about the fact or what we understand or what we've read about and that is that the officer's story somehow changed. Uh, he was outside of the car. He wasn't outside of the car. There was some confusion there. So we don't know where that came from yet. Hmm. Um, that wasn't testified to in court at all during this preliminary hearing. But there were commanders that were on scene that day. I was there. The police commissioner, the former police commissioner, Daniel Outlaw, was also there. Mm-hmm. And all of the, basically all of the top brass. I think there were a few missing. And they had the corporal come up and say what what happened or what they believe happened. But that story came from somewhere. Okay. But we don't know yet where exactly. And as I understand it, they're still investigating where that came from. Yeah. Interesting. I want to get into the preliminary hearing in a minute. But let's talk about this video. And we can all kind of talk about and react to the video. Because when videos like this are released, and it's so graphic, and it just shows, it shows a man dying. And for especially for family members and the like, it can be very, very stressful. Did everybody see the video here? I saw part of the video. Some of it I just I couldn't take watching all of it in its entirety, but I saw pieces of it enough to piece it together. Tim, you saw the video, right? What was that like when you saw the video? Uh, yeah, difficult. You know, as you mentioned, you're, you're seeing someone, their last moments in a violent manner ending. Uh, so it's difficult to watch. You know, these are the type of things. 
maybe most people just see on uh, on TV shows, movies, and things like that. Uh, but for it to be real and for it to be someone's life being taken away, uh, it's difficult. As a reporter, you know, we're told to check our emotions at the door and things like that. But uh, you're still, you know, you're dealing with a situation, a story where a man's life ended. Uh, and it's very sensitive and it's something we should all, you know, take a pause at and, and reflect on when we have to report on such a story. I agree. Gina, you were in the newsroom. I know a lot of people in the newsroom when it came over watched that video. What was it like for you? I think everybody uh, paused when they watched it. It was silent. It's rare to have a silent newsroom, but Mm. I think everybody recognized the same thing. Here is a man dying. Um, We don't know the specifics. You know, you're just looking at it for face value. At that point, nobody really understood what was being said. You you can kind of hear, you can kind of not hear. Um, So, Unfortunately, you have to watch it a couple times. You have to revisit it a couple times so you can really hear audio and you could really understand and even slow it down. But that yeah. first initial, um, I think everybody was just kind of surprised. Yeah, and Kristen, I know that that's something that you have to do in cases like this. You have to look and rewatch and look and rewatch because you have to tell the story because you know, not everybody is watching it as you're reporting it. So you really have to, you know, visit the theater of the mind and really just tell everything that you're seeing in that video, which can be taxing, of course. It is taxing. I've come to a point in my career because I do courts also. I've watched so many videos like it. I've watched a 12-year-old boy get shot in the back of the head inside of a restaurant. Um, I watched the Walter Wallace video so many times because I wanted to replay that and also you know, again, put it in the minds of people. And I had to watch it about 20, 25 times. I'll never get that mother's scream out of my head. Um, And I've also, obviously with this one, also did that. But I'm watching these videos a lot. I try and save myself when I don't have to watch it anymore. Um, But I think that, and I tell this to some of our younger reporters, that um, obviously there's a lot of trauma that goes along with this job. But your job is not to feel for the family. You're doing a justice to, you could say, the victim, no matter what victim that is. And when you just tell the story, that's your job. It took me years to figure out how to do that. But you have to kind of pull yourself away from it, as difficult as it is. The family wanted people to watch it. They wanted people to see it. You know, I'm just trying to kind of re-illustrate it for people who maybe don't want to watch it, but also want to know what happened and want to understand it. Um, for those who are blind, who can't watch it, um, I think about them and how how can I describe this in a way that, sure. that will help them understand what happened. So there's a lot of pieces to it. And you do have to kind of like check yourself because we're, again, like Tim said, like Gina said, we're all human. We all have emotions and feelings. But we have to kind of just get, this is our lane. This is our avenue. And we go home to our families. Right. That's true. I wanted to bring up the video because um, the video is really what got the city on edge, and we didn't know what was going to happen after this video was released. But one of the things that did happen after it was released is there was a call for Officer Dial to uh, be terminated from his position. And 
from what I understand, he wasn't arrested immediately after this. Can you talk about what happened with Officer Dial when this video was released and what happened with his arrest and the bail? A lot of this, you could say, is legalese or is procedural things that have to happen in a certain order for everything to be and remain intact in a legal, contractual way. In addition to that, you also need to interview all of the people or all of the people that may be involved. Um, The police department first has to do their job with the officer-involved shooting unit. Um, they have to do that first. That is procedural. And then everything is essentially turned over to the district attorney's office. And it may take a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. But the other piece of this is it's different than a regular, quote unquote, defendant in a murder case because essentially there are eyes on that officer at all times, meaning that officer is likely not to flee the country, flee the state. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why there's a procedure in place for these types of things. And so when it got down to it, the police commissioner, again, this is procedural per the contract, you know, dismissed within 30 days. They don't fire essentially right away, but they have their gun taken away. They have their badge taken away. It's just kind of the way the wording is in the contract. And then typically, you know, the district attorney can choose to go with an investigative grand jury, or they can choose themselves if they want to uh, arrest somebody or or charge them in the first place. And I guess there's a lot of misunderstanding about what he was charged with. Okay. So the best way it was described to me recently, actually by another judge, was that essentially the charge of murder is a menu option of killing another person. So in that, there's murder of the first degree, murder of the second degree, murder of the third degree, Mm -hmm. voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. Okay. The first, obviously, we know is intentional killing. Second is when it's involved with a felony, so robbery, rape, something like that. And third kind of encompasses everything else. Okay. But also, there's voluntary and involuntary. But essentially, a preliminary hearing allows for the judge to see all of the evidence, to hear all of the argument, and to have prongs of that statute or specifics of law brought to their attention about what this case may be, right? So that's why he was charged with just murder generally. When it comes to the bail hearing, it's funny because to another reporter, a reporter asked, what's the bail in this? And I said like, oh, it's murder generally. That means it's also first. So he's not going to have bail. But then another reporter, a friend of mine was like, I'm going to go to the bail hearing. And I'm like, okay, I'll go too. I don't know. It was not real. In my brain, I was not thinking this was going to be a big thing because that's a typical. You're always you're you right. don't get bail in Pennsylvania for if you're if you could possibly be charged or facing first degree murder, which would have an automatic life sentence. That's just not happen. Okay. So we go to the bail hearing, and we can't really hear what's going on behind the glass because it's a glass partition between the courtroom and the gallery. We're like ears up against the glass because <laughs> something's going on. Yeah. And it involves setting bail, which has never happened as far as all of the legal minds have consulted in the state of Pennsylvania before. And somehow we get a bail commissioner who is not a judge. They can be a judge. They're, they're not necessarily a judge. But in this case, it was a bail commissioner who decided for bail. The Commonwealth appealed that. They call another municipal court judge on the phone who says, yeah, let's set bail and sets it for lower, a lower amount of that. Okay. So 
in the two weeks, and this is something that we weren't kind of able to bring together and, and report, but in those two weeks, so many defense attorneys use that moment to argue for their clients to have bail. Of course, every time it was no, 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 no by all the municipal court judges. Like, we're not letting anybody out on bail. And so they had a bail hearing for Dial's case. And Judge Lillian Ransom says, no bail, because that is essentially what state law says. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. So let's fast forward to the preliminary hearing and the moment that Judge Wendy Pugh uh, dismissed the charges. So here's the difference between you all in the courtroom, seeing all of this happen, um, seeing how everything played out. And then, you know, for everyone else, what happens is we look at our phones and notifications are flipping out on our phones that ding, ding. And we're like, what? The judge threw it out? Because we, yeah. the layperson, we know what we saw in the video. Right. And now we're seeing that a judge threw everything out and we're going, how in the world is this happening? But from hearing your accounts in the courtroom and knowing exactly what the judge is looking for, if you explain this, I think people would kind of have a better understanding as to why the judge threw everything out. So take us to the courtroom. Gina and Tim, you can hop right in. Take us to the courtroom. And were you surprised when the judge threw everything out? Gina, were you surprised after what you saw? Yes. I was surprised that it was completely dismissed. I had expected some of it, like first-degree murder, to be thrown out. Um, I expected manslaughter to be kept, but not everything completely dismissed. Yeah, I was surprised. Okay. Tim? I was surprised, too, and I was not in the courtroom, but I was uh, downstairs of the Criminal Justice Center with uh, the TV photographers and other reporters who were stationed there. And I came in a little bit later, but I was just waiting, just in case, KJ, Gene, if you needed any help, I was just there and honestly, back in my mind, I was thinking I wouldn't be needed. Maybe this was all a procedural and then the expectation of what would have happened uh, happened. But uh, I was shocked down there as well. And I was just getting ready to deal with uh, any of the aftermath of uh, people coming down from the courtroom and, and what was anything that we needed from there. OK, got it. Were you surprised? Obviously. So were. we were all surprised. However, so. The prosecutors and the defense, they showed all videos and they kind of argued their sides, if you will. So the partner testified, the detective who was involved in the officer investigation, he testified as well. Then comes the kind of the moment of argument. An argument is where you're bringing up case law, you're bringing up the statutes, you're bringing up different pieces of law that are actually in law, what a jury would have to decide. And essentially preliminary hearing is just saying 
that there's more evidence. So 51% is essentially what you have to hit. 51% that a crime A did happen and B that these crimes that this person is accused of is maybe a tiny bit more likely than not this person and that there could be a crime. The defense can sit there through the whole preliminary hearing and do nothing. Right, because it's not up to them. It's not up to them. They just have to cross-examine, and many of them just use the time to kind of cross-examine and investigate, quote-unquote, because it's kind of a free deposition, essentially, for them. Mm -hmm. Um, The defense attorneys on this side are two lawyers who handled Bill Cosby's case, Meek Mill's case. They are some of the best in the country, right? Or at least Bill Cosby's first case, his mistrial. And then on the opposite end of the table, you had the prosecution. And I was surprised that a newer prosecutor was handling the arguments. How new? I was told that she was hired by the district attorney's office in March of 2023, that she had had a few years prior at the public defender's office, and that she may have worked at the Register of Wills prior to that. But what typically happens is in a homicide case, and I've talked to other lawyers, you would want a homicide prosecutor because there's a specific language and law and case law that you want to hit when it comes to this stuff. So you want to hit first degree murder is this and this is why. So first degree murder, they say this all the time in court, but could even be you hitting a mosquito on your hand. You're intending to to get the mosquito off your hand, kill that mosquito. That's first degree murder. It can happen within seconds. It doesn't have to be days long, hours long of Hmm. plotting and planning and buying X, Y, and Z, whatever. I think that's what a lot of us think. Right. It can be as quick as that. And they tell the jury that when you're in trial. Third degree murder, again, is that all-encompassing. And it usually has to involve malice of some sort that you intended to cause harm. And so the way that the prosecutor kind of framed it in her argument was like, it could be first degree, it could be third, or it could be voluntary. And it was surprising because you want to usually pick a lane. I've seen this over and over and over. You want to pick a lane. And I'm not trying to Monday morning quarterback this this prosecutor. I really am not. It's just surprising to me because I've seen so many homicide prelims that typically will say this is first degree murder. And here's why it's first degree murder. It shows the intention that there were six different shots that were fired or seven shots that were fired. They were in the main part of the body and the artery. The windows were up. There was no gun. Like you would hit home with that and explain why and say case law shows this or this is the prong of the stat, whatever it is. You would try and argue that. I want to say, and Gina, if I'm wrong, five to 10 minutes she maybe spoke. Maybe. It was not long at all. It was short. Now, Gina, did she hit that 51%? Did she, I know the judge was looking for that. She fell short. She definitely fell short. Hmm. And on the flip side, you had the defense saying he thought he had a gun. That's the black part of the handle. He thought that he had a gun. And so when Wendy Pugh and all judges really stay away from journalism, but they really want to maintain, generally speaking, most judges want to maintain that middle line and not be tainted by anything they see on the news or anything. So at least to me, it looked like Judge Pugh never saw the video at all. Like she stood up and was said, okay, let me look at it now. Like, oh yeah, no, I can see it. Oh, I can hear it. Like she had never seen it before on the media or anything like that. This was her first time seeing it. At least that's what it looked like. Hmm. Okay. So she saw the video. And I think that maybe there could have been an idea that if you just see the video, you would see it's first degree murder. That's and, what it looks like to us, to the but, public, right? To the right, lay person. Right. To the lay person. And I understand that. But yeah. legally speaking, you have to prove that this legally hits the statutes. 
here's why. Here's all this evidence I'm giving you, and here's why all of this evidence hits all of these prongs of law. And so when it came down to it, I thought, again, that she was maybe going to go with third or voluntary. I was thinking mostly third um, because that's what other officers have been charged with. And I heard from several people who have witnessed and watched this and, and you know, on both sides, because there were a lot of attorneys that were in there being like, we don't know really what happened in there. And there was such an eruption of emotion because there was such shock. Yeah. Ahead, Back Gina. to what KJ was saying with um, the prosecution stating their argument. She did not argue is the bottom line here. And the burden of proof is with the prosecution. So they can't just let the video speak for itself. However, in this case, she did. She wanted the video to speak for itself. And I think that's where their whole case just fell through. It fell apart. It fell apart. Okay. All right. And so, of course, it ended with Judge Wendy Pugh throwing the whole thing out. Charges were refiled, though. So a complaint was refiled. Okay. Um, there's a little uh, misnomer there. It's So the complaint means that right now, as it stands, as we sit here today, days after this happened, days after that complaint's filed, he does not face charges. However, those charges can be reinstated. It's kind of like an appeal, essentially. They're essentially appealing the process. It's not called that. They refile the complaint. But he's at home. He's not locked up for murder. Um, and he will see Judge Elaine Ransom, who, again, is the same bail judge that he saw, to, and they're going to have a hearing, and a couple things okay. could happen with that hearing. Okay. Well, the family. The reaction in the courtroom by the family was immediate, right? Um, very passionate, and understandably so. Can we talk about what we saw in the courtroom, outside of the courtroom, and all of the reaction afterwards? Um, I, I think, you know, tensions were definitely high after we heard that this whole thing was thrown out. Gina, what were some of the things that you saw? And what family members did you hear from? The first thing is what I heard more than anything, because I still was fixated on the judge and kind of in just processing, you know, what she had what, immediately yeah. said, dismiss. And they both react. And Mark Dial's mother's crying. Eddie Irizarry members are crying. Mm. They're all in disbelief. Um Eddie Irizarry's family and supporters were extremely vocal, extremely emotional. Um, they were trying to clear out the room as quickly as they possibly could just to get everybody out. That happens a lot, too, in prelims because there's so much emotion that, you know, so quick. Um, so they have the partition between the judge and the audience, mm -hmm. but they had to clear out just the one side, the, the victim side. I mean, his mom left sobbing, 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 of sobbing, course. being kind of like carried out by other people. Yeah. yeah. And outside of the courtroom, Tim, uh, what are some of the things that you saw? Once the family was able to, to leave and then uh, the first people we heard from was uh, family members of Irizarry and uh, Zoraida Garcia, his aunt, who has been uh, someone who has spoken a lot to media and has been a spokesperson for the family, kind of. Uh, she was um, just outraged, and we recorded her uh, talking to reporters. Uh, it was expletive-filled, uh, her remarks that lasted a few minutes, and she was just outraged is, is an understatement for sure. I mean, she was talking about the fact that, I'm just going to use a quote that she said here, a quote, because you just proved in Philadelphia that an officer can kill somebody and get the bleep away with it in Philadelphia. So her remarks were along those lines as if, you know, there's two justice systems here and they weren't being heard. Yeah. Uh, the video evidence that they believed was the evidence that proved everything 
Uh, they felt like the judge just threw that away and ignored that. Now, Tim, I, I, I know that, you know, you set your days up pretty early. I know you start your day around 3 a.m. or so. We do hear you uh, early in the morning. And uh, I'm wondering if you were kind of anticipating something happening overnight that you may have to pay some attention to in the morning. We had the peaceful protest that day, but things kind of went left later that night. What did you see the morning after? In the morning after, I made my way to Center City, uh, Walnut Street, right in front of the Apple Store. Uh, The Apple Store was one of three Center City locations that was uh, looted uh, that people got into. Uh, So... You know, from our understanding and seeing some of the things posted on social media, people got into the Apple store. They got iPhones, iPads, you know, those devices that are on display there that we hear. They're, they're actually not of good use when once you're out of the store. You know, it's not something you can just jailbreak, for example, and use. Uh, so I also walked by the Lululemon store on Walnut Street and, and the place was a mess on the inside. We can see from the outside the footlocker. There was a cracked front window, front door. And on the inside, you could see shoes, clothes all over the place. So uh, there were looters there happened to, according to police, take advantage of this situation, take advantage of the peaceful protest that took place. And they saw an opening and used that as an opportunity to uh, take stuff. I mean, I think when it comes down to it. So uh, police reiterated and then really wanted to emphasize and city officials as well. Tamar Alexander, the managing director of the city, made it a point to say that uh, what happened, the looting, and things like that was separate from the peaceful protests that took place over this uh, decision. Yeah, it's rough. Um, you know, whenever we see decisions like this, especially when it's attached to a video, you never know how the public is going to react. And um, I think uh, everyone did a great job telling the story, reporting the story and relaying all the information um, to the public. Uh, so Tim and Kristen and Gina, you know, you guys did a great job with this. And uh, we will continue to follow it, of course, because it's not over. Nope. October 25th is the next hearing. All right. And um, no, we will bring you all that information. Thanks so much for our first Bridging Philly Reporters Roundtable. Thanks, Raquel. Thank you. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. These trees and flowers all are important for a sustainable ecosystem, and little kids get it. Children are creating a pollinator garden for an upcoming art installation. Let's learn more about it on the latest Shara in the City. Mindy Flexer is a local artist and climate change activist who's working with local youth to bring awareness to the impacts of climate change at an upcoming exhibit at the Woodmere Art Museum in Chestnut Hill. So we visited Mindy and her young artists at their studio in Germantown as they made finishing touches to their bees, trees, and nests ahead of their opening on September 30th. When I pulled up to the artist collective where they had their studio, I was met at the entrance with pure joy. Children were playing, running and chasing one another while others were rinsing their paintbrushes and pans next to older children who were overseeing everything and painting this multicolored sky backdrop for the exhibit. Then Mindy popped her head up over the stair railing where the other artists were folding red paper flowers. And I'm telling you, there was a whirlwind of activity. What's going on here? We're creating a lot of things. One of the things we're creating is a pollinator garden that's going to be an installation at Woodmere Art Museum with giant bees, butterflies, 
bats, lemurs, flowers. And we're also creating a community. We're creating friendships. We're creating a sense of people being able to work together to do things that they wouldn't have known they could do. And it's also a sense of awareness. Like this has a message along with it, yes? Absolutely, and one of the messages is that the smallest things can make a difference to the biggest things. So something as huge as climate, we can be part of the solution for by cultivating something as small as a garden and caring about something as tiny as a bumblebee. No small actors. No small actors, and it's part of why our hummingbirds are, one of our hummingbirds is about eight feet long. So we made a lot of huge things because small things are easy to overlook. So we're just kind of using a magnifying glass to make them huge so everyone can see them. I love that. And you're also kind of expanding on the idea of accountability. When it comes to climate, when it comes to our responsibility as a community, as individuals, you really tap into that too. I'm tapping into fun accountability, that you can take responsibility in a way that's really fun because you get to be with other people working on a big project. So one of the things that's been great is that it's good for the greater good and it's also good for us because we have a great time getting to be together and think together and make things together. Fun and accountability are not mutually exclusive. They're not, and they actually go together. Like, people tend to think of being responsible as kind of like a boring chore, but it's actually really nice. It means that you have agency and power, and you can work with other people, and you can collaborate, um, and you can invent things together that neither one of you would have thought of by yourselves. So let's talk to some of the kids involved. There are ages ranging from 6 to about 20 years old, and boy, they had a lot to say. I'm Lucy Smith. Audrey Irwin. You said you think it's going well. Why? How? Why? Why? It just, it looks really good. It's really fun. I think everybody's doing a good job. We're all working together, making some cool stuff. Yeah, you're pretty amazing. I was watching you guys fold this. So what is this supposed to be? We were going to make bees, but then we decided that this stuff was more interesting. It is pretty cool. It kind of reminds (laughs) me of origami. Well, yeah, it is origami. But we made origami bees the other day, and those are going in the garden thing, so... So how do you even make those? I saw some of the cool things you did, like the lemur. I saw, uh, what else did I see? Like a huge hummingbird. Those things, we just took like recycled stuff from over there and we just sort of taped it up and painted it. Pretty cool. So why make little things big? Yeah, it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just just fun to like over-exaggerate stuff. Like why not? It's like, yeah, why not? (laughs) And I think the point is like these small things make even the largest of impacts, right? Just like kids. You may be small, but you guys make a huge impact in the world. Mm -hmm. What about you? What do you think? (laughs) Honestly? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that what we're making is like really, really cool. So... It's really important. We're, um, it's like about how pollinators, they keep everything alive. We wouldn't be able to breathe without them like pollinating plants and stuff. Okay, so what's your name? Jelani. What are you holding right now? Uh, a bird. Okay, did you make this bird? Yes. What'd you make it from? Um, I made it from a styrofoam box, packing tape, um, masking tape, tissue paper, and uh, wire. Yeah. No, the cool thing is it's like your size. It's almost yeah. as big as you are. How was it making it? Um, it was really hard and very annoying. It also took like a very long time. But how was it finishing it? Finishing it was really nice. So what about you? What's your name? Noah. Okay, Noah. How old are you? Six and a half. What? You're so young. The youngest artist here, I think, huh? So what did you make? I made a 
bird, which is like already in the museum, which I finished. And I also made a bee, which I didn't finish. And I made a lizard that I didn't finish. This is pretty cool that you're involved in this because you're bringing a really interesting perspective. You're bringing that kid perspective. You're looking up, right? And when you look up, you see a bird. Did you create that bird Do you look up and see? I made a bird, but it's a fantastical bird. Her name's called Sunset, and she only had sunset colors. So, like, it's not real. All those animals we made are made out of recycled things that people didn't want anymore. Old styrofoam boxes, bubble wrap, old seltzer bottles. So they're lighter than air and they're going to be flying all around the gallery and they're not going to break the ceiling because they're super light, made out of air. I love this. This is fantastic. It really is. Pollinator Power at the Woodmere Museum starting September 30th. Go check it out. You'll love what you see. Thank you so much for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Showerday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>